0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I do encourage you to come back this evening for the celebration of the completion of uh, the three years of study for four of the men and two years of study for two other men. A word of explanation. Sometimes when men get done two years, there's a redirection. And we thought that since Forrest and Wayne had completed two years of study, rather than typically in a seminary, the way it works is you get a master's of theology or a master's of Christian education or something like that. If, If you take a slightly less vigorous approach And the guys that get the MDivs often, it takes them four years, and others can get done two or three. And uh, it doesn't mean that you won't go on it sometime and get an MDiv. Well, the same thing is true here, that uh, we've decided to award a certificate for two years of study, which Forrest and uh, Dwayne will be getting this afternoon. So I encourage you to come back. Um, Join with us in recognizing the importance of training pastors by coming and celebrating the completion of these men's work. Would you please open your Bibles up to uh, Psalm chapter 1? We're going to start a series on the Psalms. And so far, you have heard one version of Psalm 1 that the men have written, and we're going to have another one before the end of the morning. And so I would uh, encourage you to devote yourself to the Psalms, the first uh, ten or so, I think, Jody, aren't we going to go through first ten. the first ten, okay. And this morning, as Julie Andrews said, we will start at the very beginning, which is So Psalm 1 is the architectonics of the book of Psalms. So it's a summary, it sets everything out there, and then everything that comes later in the book of Psalms is just sort of a repetition of, of, of the scheme that's given in Psalm 1. So to show our honor for the word of God as we read, would you please stand? And we're going to read Psalm 1. but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to begin by um, talking about One aspect of our culture today that's extremely important for you to know, and somebody after my my sermon last week, they said to me, maybe it was during the sermon, they said, you know, you say that a lot, but it's helpful to us. I don't remember who it was that said that. And that's one of the marks of old age is you get repetitious and people stifle their yawns, right? So I'm going to say something I've often said to you, but I don't mind saying it again because it's very important. It'll be helpful to you. Your age, the age you live in, is an age that hates distinctions. Every distinction that God has made, you're culturally tuned to despise. And so when we went through the first few chapters of Genesis, you saw this. The distinction between man and animal. You know? We live in a day when, you know, if we can just get it right, the chimpanzees will talk and use every tool we use, you know. Man's just a different animal. And so we we obliterate that distinction. We obliterate the distinction, obviously, between male and female. Now, how do we talk about this hatred for distinction? The way we talk about it is we, some people will say, oh, you know, you're dichotomizing, you know, you're making it a dichotomy. And Andrew Henry told me the word I think I was looking for, which is, uh, you're engaging in binary thinking. Have any of you heard that? And you know, it's always a pejorative. It's always people looking at you and, and feeling superior to you. What is binary? Well, binary is one of two. Buy, all right? And so, if you give yourself to categorizing things, to devising things into two groups, people say, you know, he's, he's in bondage to binary thinking. And you know you've been dissed. All right? Now, what does the Bible do? The Bible never stops dealing in binaries, it just never stops. And so the first thing we notice about this psalm, which we actually don't even notice, we just read it, we're so used to the binary revelation of God, the heavens and the earth, heaven and hell, good and evil, and what? The righteous and the wicked. The Bible doesn't have gray people. You listen to Jesus' teaching, you listen to what other things in Scripture say, and it just separates people the way Psalm 1 does it. And the way Psalm 1 does it is it says the righteous and the wicked. I always think with Scripture that uh, if people didn't know it was Scripture, there would be endless objections to the way Scripture communicates. You know, people would say, well, don't, don't engage in such simplistic binary thinking. You know, it's not just the righteous and the wicked. There's all kinds of victims. There's all kinds of people who are adrift on the sea of their pain. And those people really don't have moral agency. You know, they're victims. The whole point of being a victim is that you're not righteous or wicked. You're just impotent. I always say that there's only one gift that's been given to women by feminism. And you know what it is? It's the death of their moral agency. (laughs) Because we live in a victim culture. And so no woman is ever blamed for anything. If you ever blame a woman for anything, you don't get it. That's what feminism takes away from a woman. No woman has ever made a decision to kill her unborn child. You know? She's just the victim of her dad, the victim of her boyfriend, the victim of the doctor, the victim of everybody else. Scripture says righteous and wicked. Scripture says that at the judgment seat of God, there will be what? Sheep and goats. Now, I like goats. I have milk goats, you know. It's not good to be a goat before God at the judgment seat. Because the sheep go into the sheepfold. They know the voice of their shepherd and they follow him. And the goats go where? Remember what the scapegoat did in Israel? The sins of the nation were put on him and he was sent where? Outside the camp. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp. Outside Jerusalem. And so we look at scripture and it's constantly making these divisions. Binary divisions. It's just like this. Jesus is constantly doing it, scripture's doing it, the prophets are doing it, God does it as a part of his creation from the very beginning. It's making distinctions, but we hate distinctions. And the reason we hate distinctions is that we've been trained to be nuanced. We've been trained in grays, and then not just grays, but 50 shades of gray. And so we are unbelievably adept at making the most unbelievable distinctions. If you think you know what 1950s furniture is, okay, and you go on to the internet and you buy a housewarming gift for Stephen and Sieber when they move in, and you have the stupidity to take it over to their house and give it to them, what do you think the chances are that that gift will continue to live in their house? Come on, you guys, you know Stephen and Zebra. It will never rise to the level of Stephen's aesthetic taste. <laughs> Many of you have wives like this, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, our, our supreme ability that we value here is the ability to distinguish ourselves from others by the precise line and the color of the line of our eyeglasses. You know, some of us have a solid, some have something in between two solids, some of us have garish, some of us have subtle, some of us have, what's that thing called that's like black and brown? Huh? Tortoise shell. Some of us have tortoise shell, some of us have hard contacts, some have soft contacts. Some of us like Terminator 2 better than Terminator 1, Joyce Huck. <laughs> and we are so proud of our ability to see the infinite variety of taste, of judgment, of and we just live on continuums. And so we expect that God will judge us on a continuum. Which means on a what? On a curve. Okay? And so we judge ourselves by other people, and there's no wicked and there's no righteous. There's only gradations that muddle their way along until they die, and then it's a crapshoot, and who knows what God's going to do. And if anybody says, well, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, we go, well, <laughs> you know, you're kind of binary in your thinking, aren't you? And we know we've done been put in our place. (laughs) I'm binary? Well, I am kind of old. I guess, yeah, the older you get, the crustier you get. So I guess you get binary. but, But wait, Psalm 1 says the wicked and the righteous. Well, yeah, but, you know, it was written to a binary culture. We are so cocksure of ourselves. And then God speaks. I always tell you, if you're raising children, make sure that occasionally they hear the authority of God. My mother, I'd say, but why? But why? You know, any of you ever say that? Any of your kids ever say that, Scott? But why? My mother She'd say, because I said so, that's why. And so we come to Scripture and we judge it. We don't even realize we're doing it because we've been taught to have a high view of Scripture. And so we say, well, you know, I, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe in the plenary verbal inspiration. You know, I, me and the Bible, I stand on the Word of God, you know. And then we open up the Bible and immediately it's going like this. You know, it's just separating right and left, right and left, right and left, right and left. And we don't even see it. So that's the first thing I want you to see about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 divides into two groups, not three, not four, not five. It divides into two groups, and the two groups are what? The righteous and the wicked. Now, first the righteous, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This is parallelism, and it's saying the same thing three times, but not quite the same. But it's making the same point. What is the progression of those three things? The progression is a growing comfort until you're just at home. Walk, stand, sit. So y'all know, this is a story I've told you often, about the time that I was a fool and wicked and bought a Lexus. Everybody heard this story, right? So Phil Henry's dad was a banker who had helped bring Toyota to, what's it called, that town down in the south. Huh? What is it? No, not Prince, well, yeah, but Evansville, Evansville. Isn't that where the, isn't there a Toyota plant down? Okay, yeah, thank you. So he'd help bring this, and so he had this LS400, you know, clamshell, five CD changer in the glove box, you know. And so Phil talked to me and said that his dad would be willing to sell me this car at a good price. And I thought to myself, you know... (laughs) You know, that would be a good car for Tim Bailey to own. Well, at least that would be a good car for Tim Bailey's wife, husband, to own. So we drove down there, and he had a banker's house, and all of a sudden I realized there were things that I was made for that I had never realized before, you know. And so, you know, we do the business, and then we go out, and I get in the car, and it's got a Bose sound system and a CD changer and everything, and we start the drive back to Bloomington. And I want to hear the stereo, so I turn it on real loud, very loudly. And my band comes on. And God sent a song to me as a warning of what that car would mean in my life. And you know what song it was that came on? I have become comfortably numb. Pink Floyd, comfortably none. And I knew what God was saying to me. And by the time that car sold, I was vomiting it out of my mouth. And when it finally sold, I told the congregation that it had been wickedness that I had bought that car. If I ever did anything like that again, I wanted people to rise up against me. And so this is the way that the world, you remember that Jesus warns us against the deceitfulness of wealth and the deceitfulness of sin. And this is what sin does to us. At first we walk and then we stand and then we sit. That's the way sin deals with us. And we think we're masters of our destiny. Oh, I bought the car and I told Mary Lee I was going to sell it six months later and make money off it. <laughs> that was a joke. Alexander Pope has the poem, right? Vice, which is evil, vice is a monster of such frightful mean, M I E N, which means face, countenance. Vice is a monster. With such a scary face as to be hated needs but to be seen. All you have to do is look at vice, and you hate it. It's so scary. And then it's, he says, but seen what? Too often, but seen too oft, familiar with its face now, we first endure and then pity and then embrace. Vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with its face. We first endure, and then pity, and then embrace. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counseling, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scoffer. He doesn't do it. He doesn't think he's wiser than God. He doesn't think that he can know everything about evil without giving in to evil. He doesn't make a study of evil. He's, with regard to evil, he's innocent. Okay? And then the pivot, and the pivot is this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So that's the pivot. You see this? He doesn't stand, he doesn't, he doesn't walk, stand, or sit, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, in Psalm 2, it talks about how the wicked uh, plot evil against God, all right? It's the same word for his delight is in the law, and he meditates. This word meditate is that same word, okay? His delight is in the law, and his, he meditates. So we got delighting, and we got meditating. Now, what is delighting and meditating? Well, it's what you do when you're trying to fall asleep. When you're trying to fall asleep, you try to think of something you can think about that gives you joy in your life. And so for me, depending on what time of year it is, it's "Tomorrow I might get to use my snowboard." I mean, that's, sorry, but that's my delight. Or maybe. The radishes will have sprouted tomorrow. Or that rose bush is going to start blossoming. Maybe for you, it's a new love in your life. Maybe it is uh, a new car, a vacation, um, a wonderful letter you got from somebody. Maybe it's finding out you're pregnant. There are things we delight in much like I have this sugar in my mouth. And I'm circulating it through my mouth. And that's the way we are. We're like a cow ruminating. This is the way the godly are with Scripture. They're cows ruminating, cogitating. They're chewing their cud. And that's how the godly are with Scripture. That scripture is so much a part of who they are that when they're lying in bed at night, they think over scripture instead of thinking over their garden. It's come to, to live in their hearts. Now, how can that happen without memorizing scripture? You realize that nobody in scripture had scripture. Nobody. I mean, yeah, some, some had the letter, but almost nobody had it. So when you see incidental indications of people who know scripture and recite it, that's because they had memorized it. So do we memorize scripture? We're not a memorizing culture, because it's so easy. Uh, Spurgeon, when he started in the ministry, refused to use a concordance. And I've often thought about how I should have done that, but for me it's not a concordance, it's the computer. It's instantaneous to find any text of scripture on your smartphone. And so what happens is we become lazy, and if we were all put in in prison, with no Bible today, how much of Scripture would you be able to recall? But back in the old days, it was an oral culture. They passed on Scripture, and so they ruminated on it. They meditated on it. They memorized it. They knew it by heart. And you can see this all the time in Scripture. You can see prophets quoting the Psalms. You know, you can see the most beautiful example, maybe, is, is, uh, is Mary's uh, uh, Magnificat. Is wonderful quotations from the Old Testament. And so we don't stand, we don't walk, we don't stand, we don't sit, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. Now, um, this is another thing that I've told many of you before, but I want to say it to you. You know, it says in Psalm 119, how. Can a young man keep his way pure? And what it says is, by basically by memorizing scripture, by putting scripture in your heart. Thy word, what does it say? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So I'm a new um, husband, what, 22, 23? Um and I'm going to UW-Madison. Any of you been to UW-Madison? You know about Bascom Hill. So coming down to the Union is this beautiful hill of grass and it has sidewalks that crisscross it. And so here I am a young husband with a wife and a child and I'm having to walk this hill and all of a sudden springtime comes. And with springtime that hill becomes one massive flesh pot. Everywhere I look are naked bodies. Now, they're not completely naked, but they're not leaving anything to the imagination. And I'm a new father, and all of a sudden, the stakes are very high. And I realize how high they are. And as I'd walk that sidewalk, I'd feel like the fires of hell were burning as I walked you know and I just didn't know how to keep my eyes from looking you know I just didn't know how to do it and so each day it was this horrible battle of trying to walk Bascom Hill you know and then I don't know why but for some reason I thought well maybe I should memorize scripture and I don't know why but I thought maybe I should memorize Psalm 1 And so I had a little three-by-five card, and as I walked the flesh pots of Bascom Hill, you know, this little three-by-five, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sins, nor sitteth. You know, and God protected me. I don't know how I got through UW-Madison. You know, if I were to tell you some of the things that happened to me there, and I'm so thankful to God. So, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then it says, he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. You know, I know that for many of you, it's hard for you to look at yourself and think of you being a tree. You feel more like a, you know, uh, I don't know what plant would it be, despised plant, you know, dandelion, poison ivy, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want you to notice what it actually says here is this. It says, he will be like a tree who has planted itself by the rivers of water. But that's not what it says. It says, he will be like a tree planted. Who's doing the planting? You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. God plants you. And God chooses the place to plant you. is not a place where you'll have a watering can brought to you, but it's a place where there's not just one, but how many? Multiple streams. So God takes his plants, he plants them, and he plants them where they have water. And you know, you might say, well, I don't have enough water. I'm starving here. But you're not. Because God says that the righteous don't go without. And you say, but I'm without, and scripture says, no, you're not. And if you keep going, it says this, it says, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams, plural, streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Why am I laughing? Well, I'm laughing because I look out and I see you and I know you. (laughs) And I know that all of you are perfectly convinced that you know what your season is. You know, that fig tree thought that it wasn't the season for fruit for the master. I'm sure that fruit tree could have given us a lecture on what the proper season was for figs. (laughs) You know? I mean, this is so obvious. God God chooses our seasons to produce fruit. There are many people who produce most of their fruit when they're very young and then go fruitless the rest of their lives. You ever notice that? And all they can ever do is tell you how back when they were in college in such and such a group, they had fruit. Right? Back at this church, they had fruit. Right? And then there are people who, you watch them through their life And then when they get older, all of a sudden, it's like there's just an explosion of fruit. There are people who never produce any fruit until they lose a child or a husband or a wife. And all of a sudden, there's an explosion of fruit from them. God is the gardener, and God will produce the fruit that he has ordained for us at the time that he ordains it. You know what Pascal said, that an awful lot of the wickedness in the world is simply a function of men not being content to sit at home in their living room. And there are an awful lot of women who are not content simply to sit at home with their children and train up the child. There are an awful lot of men who work so they don't have to have the burden of being the head of their home. Give yourself to the mundane. Give yourself to the ordinary. Give yourself to what is small. Give yourself to what is despised. Give yourself to what is quiet, what is poor, what is hidden. And trust God that in his time, he will produce fruit. There are so many things in life when you get to be 60 That you look back at the work that you've done through the years, and every individual time you did that work, it just seemed like it was nothing. And yet you have these habits, and over a lifetime, habits can produce unbelievable fruit. Right? You all know this, right? Because you all play video games. And you know the desperate wickedness that a video game has produced in you. You say, desperate wickedness, and I say, yeah, desperate wickedness. You say, oh, no, 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 I'm at least home, sitting in my living room. I say, no, you're not. You're, you're like living a fantasy world, and you're being taught that passivity is what God makes men for. And, and uh, voyeuristic uh, participation in good and evil without you ever having to take any risks with good and evil yourself. I mean, video games are so awful. (laughs) He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit when? In its season. Who determines the season? God determines it. So, it is well. It's well. It's well. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And you say again, well, I'm not prospering. There you are. In time, he makes all things beautiful. Uh, You know, we had friends that owned a farm up in Wisconsin, Dutch guy, and all of a sudden they decided that they were being called to the mission field, but they couldn't see their way clear to selling this farm, which had been in the family And so being a dairy farmer was what you had to do if you were Dutch and lived in that area. But they felt the clear call of God to go out on the mission field. And I remember them, I think it was at our house, I don't remember where it was, but I remember them, they weren't in our church, but them telling us, giving us their testimony of how God finally solidified their call to the mission field, and it was that they were reading in Mark, where it says that no man has given up house or home Or land. And it makes this list of our treasures. And then it says, but that God, what? Will give back or reward them, what? Anybody remember? A hundred times. And then this little phrase. And what is the little phrase? In this life and in the life to come. I remember one time we were, uh, the pro-life group was exhibiting at the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly, and I was off somewhere from our exhibit booth, and I got called to come back to the booth because there was a a missionary from Korea, an ordained minister, Presbyterian minister, who was uh, causing terrible, terrible problems among uh, uh, the people at the booth. And... I think there were women in tears. And I went back and I started talking to him, moved him, you know, as I talked, I kept moving away from the booth just to remove his evil influence. And he was evil. I'd never met him before. And uh, I kept asking him questions. And finally, I said to him, you know, I said, the difference between you and me is I said, I believe that this life is an anteroom to the judgment seat of God. And that it will be over soon, and then we will stand before God and give an account. And based on God's judgment, we will go to heaven and hell. And I said, you don't believe in anything other than this life. And so I said to him, basically, all you believe in is this this life. And he looked at me, and he got this horrible, almost possessed look on his face. And he said, that's right. He said, I don't believe in this pie-in-the-sky by-and-by expletive. Minister of the Word, Presbyterian, Missionary to Korea. And this is what God says. God says... Whatever he does, he prospers. And who decides what prospering is? Who decides whether it's in season or out of season? It's God. So don't be so certain that you know when you should bear fruit and don't be so certain that you know what prospering is. Remember my parents saying that they were never as sure of the love of God is when they walked away from a fresh grave of their child. And they also said that the death of their children was much harder for their friends than it was for them. And I've looked over the years and seen the fruit of the deaths of their children. It's unbelievably beautiful. So don't think you know your season. Don't think you know what prospering is for you. Every Sunday I preach, I take strength from you. Every single Sunday, you just pour strength out on me. And you probably feel like you're dried up. You're not. Unbelievably fruitful. The wicked are not so. Now, this isn't me saying this. This is God saying it. And God ordained that the next statement is the wicked are not so. Why would God do that? Well, because we're enticed to look at the wicked and to envy them. Psalm 73. And so even though there are all these precious promises and we know that God is in charge of us and that he's planted us by the streams and that we'll produce our... But then God knows we're still weak and we have a tendency to look at the wicked and to believe that they're the ones that are going to get all the goodies. And so right here, God says, right here, not so the wicked, not so the wicked. And there you see that, that stupid binary thinking of God. Not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. And all of a sudden, you have to make a choice. You righteous or wicked? (laughs) Which is it? What are you? Are you righteous or wicked? (laughs) Yeah, Joni says yes. (laughs) See, you're resisting binary thinking. (laughs) You're saying both, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, That's how the righteous feel. And so he says... The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So much of scripture we don't understand because we've never lived on a farm. But chaff, you take grain and you put it under pressure, and then you go, and depending on how hard you blow, you'll blow the chaff, the stuff that you don't want away. And what will be left will be the kernel of the wheat that's good that you use to make bread or something like that. And what God says is, first of all, there are wicked, and then he says, they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So, all of the casinos and the hotels with his name on them of Donald Trump. That's it. all the extravagant display, remember the guy, (laughs) the Mustang? It's gone. It's all gone. The houses, the bank accounts, the two million, two and a half million lunch with the idiot out in Nebraska, Warren Buffett, Omaha. Warren Buffett, Tim Cook, Gone. It's all gone. And, and remember, I'm not saying this because I'm passive aggressive. I'm saying this because this is what God says about the wicked. And you say, well, how can you say Tim Cook is wicked? And I say, have you ever listened to any of his principles? If you can't call Tim Cook wicked because you use an Apple iPhone, you have a problem. The man is wicked. And you say, well, there you go with that, like, binary thinking. And I say, okay, so do you know anybody who's wicked? And you say, yes, I am. And I say, you're clouding the issue. What you're really doing is refusing to call anybody else wicked because you don't want to call yourself godly. And so I look out at you when I'm talking about the righteous, and I want to make you say, I am righteous. David said it when he wrote the Psalms. Why won't you say it? Well, because I'm humble. No, it isn't. It's not because you're humble. It's because you don't want to live by the standards of God. And so what we have to realize is that we have to not just think generally about wicked, but we have to think about specific things, specific positions. Wickedness works by specificity. Scripture actually describes the wicked. All right? Read Romans 1. Okay, and then it comes to us in Romans 2. All right, so he says, The wicked are not so, they are like chaff which the wind dries away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The reason that we don't want to think about the wicked and we don't want to name wickedness and we don't want to meditate on our children, husband, wife, parents, family, let alone corporations, politicians, is that we don't want to face the judgment of God ourselves. That's, 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 it's a self-protective thing. You know, you go into a room and you start talking about what's right and wrong, and what immediately happens in the room? You're attacked. And so, why, do, why does a dad stay away from his home at work? Because the work at home is so difficult that he stays away to avoid the work. And so you stay away from binary thinking of righteous and wicked, You stay away from the judgment seat. You stay away from the distinction between holiness and wickedness. All these things we avoid because every single one of them forces us to make a decision whether we will choose life or choose death. Every one of them makes us make a decision whether we will live by faith or whether we will give ourselves to unbelief. And people, you know that today to believe what Scripture teaches about sexuality requires unbelievable faith on our part. We can't open our mouths without having the entire world scorn us. And then when we do open our mouths, we say the most pathetically inane and weak things you could ever imagine. And then we congratulate ourselves that we're so bold, (laughs) you know. It's just pathetic. And why? Because we don't want other people disliking us being angry at us. But what about God? What about God? Last night, David was talking to our speaker for commencement this afternoon. And... uh, And David, um, Pastor Max, told him that I'm always saying this is my last point, and then I add another one, and add another one, and add another one. I didn't really appreciate David saying that. Actually, I appreciate everything David says. Unlike Annie. (laughs) That's a joke. So, here we come. Are you ready? To the end. Okay. And listen to this. This is Revelation 6. And this is what Revelation 6 says. I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake... And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places." Then the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and, do you know how it ends? It ends, who is able to stand? Now listen, when I read that to you, Doesn't your heart say, yes, I can't stand? That's the mark of a Christian. And the wicked, right now, hearing that, have no question. What? They have no question that they will be able to stand. And yet, when that happens, those of us who know we can't stand in the holiness of God will be dressed in the righteousness of Jesus and those who are absolutely certain that they stand will will cry for the mountains to fall on them because they can't bear the wrath of the lamb of god whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin And that is your comfort. And it doesn't feel comfortable, but it is, because now you've been warned what their end is and what your end is. If the elders would come, let's have the Lord's Supper.